Heavenly Father, as we do look to your word now, would you open our eyes, Lord, to behold wonderful things in your word? Again, Lord, would you open our eyes to see the spiritual beauty of Jesus Christ? And God, would you help me in particular, I pray, to preach your word with faithfulness and with zeal? Lord, let me make the the beauty of Christ clear so that Jesus Christ himself will be attractive and compelling to everyone here, Lord, that we might love him all the more and serve him all the more dearly. God, would you accomplish these things for the sake of your name, for the sake of your son? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Luke 4, 16 through 21. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Luke 6. 27 through 36. I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love sinners, those who love them. (laughs) For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Luke seven eleven through 15. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, the man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, 
Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Luke nine twenty eight through 35 Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Well, for the last few months, we've been looking at Luke's portrait of Jesus. Again, I think this is the primary thing that Luke is trying to communicate to us in these early chapters of his gospel. He's simply trying to communicate to us who was Jesus Christ. Of course, we can take for granted at our day and age that everybody kind of knows who Jesus Christ was, but we must remember that when this was first written, no one knew about Jesus Christ, and so Jesus needed an introduction from the ground up. And so that is what Luke and the other gospel writers were providing for us. They were introducing us to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So as we close the series out this morning, I do want to just kind of zoom out big picture and ask, what is it that we learn from these chapters about who is Jesus Christ? But before I jump into that question of who is Jesus Christ, I do want to first ask the question, why is this important? Why does it matter to my life that I know who Jesus Christ is? Is this just an exercise in religious thinking, or does this actually have some sort of practical value to me? Well, before I even answer the question of practical value, I do just want to first observe that obviously Luke, the gospel writer, and by extension God himself who inspired this account, thought it was very important for us to know who Jesus Christ was. God knows us better than any human could ever possibly know us. He created us. He made us. And therefore, what he puts in his word is not simply pointless. It's not just old facts that we need to know about. No, God knows our frame and he knows what we most need to know if we are going to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. If we're going to live the lives that God wants us to live, if we're going to believe about God what we're supposed to believe, then God knows what he has to put on paper. And he put on paper for us all of these words about Jesus Christ. And so it must be important, even if maybe we don't see at first how it is important. And so the better question for us to ask is not simply, why is this important? But to ask the question in particular of how is this important, knowing that it is. 
And so as I've thought about this question, why is it so important for us to know about who Jesus Christ is? The best answer that I can come up with is that knowing Jesus Christ is supposed to be the very aim of our lives. Knowing Jesus Christ is the very thing that we were created for. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Philippians 3, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 10. He says, For whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Clearly, for the Apostle Paul, he thought that knowing Jesus Christ was worthy of all of his efforts, worthy of centering his whole life on this one great aim. And clearly, Paul also conceived of himself as not simply knowing about Jesus Christ, like knowing about him cognitively, like this is what he was like, but actually having an intimate relationship with him. He wanted to be found in Christ, as verse 9 says. He wanted to be so united to Christ by faith that he knows the power of Christ's resurrection in his bones and he knows the power of Christ's death in his body. He wants to be so identified with Christ that Christ is really like a spouse to him, as someone that he intimately knows. And this is the great aim of our lives. This is what we were created for, beloved, is to behold and relate to the God of all the earth. We were made in the image of God precisely so that we could behold and become united to the image of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We human beings can ultimately only be changed by one thing, and that is by a sight of beauty. We can tell ourselves to do something 100 times, but we will never do it if we don't see any beauty or goodness in it. We can even tell ourselves that something is the right thing to do or it's a good thing to do, but we still will not do it if we don't find it attractive in some way. Thomas Chalmers famously called this the expulsive power of a new affection. When you find something that captivates you, that consumes your desires, then everything else in life becomes background noise. You're able to do anything by the power of desire, by the power of attraction to what you find most beautiful. We can see this working all around the world in negative ways with things like addictions or affairs. People become so enamored with something that they seem willing to sacrifice their whole lives and everything else to get that one thing. But if it can work in negative ways, it can work in positive ways as well. If you can see the beauty of Jesus Christ, and if you can be captivated by all that he is and all that he offers, then the whole rest of your life can change. Then everything else in your life can become background noise compared to the worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Or as Paul puts it, everything else can be rubbish compared to the worth of knowing Jesus Christ. 
That is the greatness of seeing his beauty, of knowing what he is like. Is it because he is so beautiful? Because he is so worthy. When your eyes are truly opened to him, then your whole life changes. Then you're willing to give up everything else because you know that he is better. And so I pray that you will see just how much better he is this morning. Even as you're sharing the gospel with others, or even as you're trying to believe the gospel yourself, consider asking the question, why do I believe the gospel? Or why do I think this gospel is good news? And of course, there are reasons to trust the gospel simply for self-preservation, because judgment is coming into this world, and whoever does not know Christ will be thrown into the lake of fire. But even greater than the desire for self-preservation, I would argue, is that through the gospel, that is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can, be, we can come to know Jesus Christ. We can be welcomed to him. Having Jesus Christ is even better than having life itself. Imagine that the greatest concert the world has ever known was coming to downtown Pittsburgh. The most beautiful music that was ever known to man was coming here. If everybody in Pittsburgh knew that, they would probably give up food so that they could get tickets. They would want to be there more than anything else. The same is true with the gospel, beloved, that he is the most worthy, the most beautiful, the most handsome, the most glorious, the most perfect being to ever exist. And so when you get a sight of him, you see that everything else is dust in comparison. You can't look away. He is too good to be true. And you are willing to give up whatever it takes in order to have him in order to know him by faith. And so as we look at Luke's presentation of Jesus Christ this morning, let's each pray right now that God would do that sort of work in our hearts to help us to see just how much better he is. And beloved, I know I myself have a long way to go here. There are too many other things in my life I know that I see as beautiful and as good in comparison to Jesus Christ, when in reality I should be able to see clearly that there is nothing good at all compared to him. Yes, God gives us other good things. He gives us family and food and friends. He gives us many good things. But in comparison to Jesus Christ, these things are indeed worthless. And yet so many times in my own life, I do look at TV or I look at the internet or I look at food or family or all of these things and think that, yeah, these things, this is where life really is. This is what I really want. And so even as I preach this morning, my prayer is that the Lord would show me more and more that Jesus Christ truly is worthy of my whole and utter devotion. So there are really three things that I want to highlight for us this morning about the beauty and the worth of Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, I could have picked 100 things that we see in Luke about the beauty and worth of Jesus Christ, but I wanted to focus on these three things just because I think these three things are what shine through most brightly in this Gospel of Luke. And the first thing that I want us to see is we see how Jesus is really God-restrained. 
Jesus is God emptied or God humbled. The second thing I want us to see is that Jesus is the perfect manifestation of the love of God. So Jesus is love. And then the third and last thing I want us to see is that Jesus is uncompromising in his service to God and his devotion to God. So that's where we're going now to look at those three things. So the first and perhaps the most stunning thing that we see about Jesus in the Gospel of Luke is that he is God-restrained. That is, he is the Almighty One. Jesus is the Eternal One. But he is restrained. He is put into human form. Again, before Jesus came onto the scene, all of us would have thought this utterly impossible for God to put on flesh. And yet, that is precisely what happened in the person of Jesus Christ. The one who has existed forever, who has all power and all authority, he became a man. And not only did he become a man, but he became poor. He became ugly. He became a nobody. In order to represent us, beloved, in order to be united to us, You've probably heard of the show Undercover Boss. I can't say that I've ever watched that show myself, but the concept is pretty straightforward. It's somebody who's the owner of a business or the CEO of a business. One day, he'll dress up as a regular employee just to see what it's like to work in his company, to see how he's treated. Well, Jesus is the ultimate, and he is the greatest imaginable undercover boss. He is like a five-star general who has become a private. He is like Jeff Bezos becoming a package handler. But a thousand times greater than any of those things. He is God in the flesh. We see this in two ways in particular. First, we see it in the nature of Jesus Christ. This is what we saw in Luke chapter 9 in the story of Jesus' transfiguration when he went up on the mountain with his disciples and the glory of God began to shine through the human flesh of Jesus Christ. We see that Jesus was truly God and truly man. The sum of, of that story is told to us in Luke 9 verse 35. It says, And a voice came out from the cloud saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And this word son in that verse does not simply refer to a title or to a position of Jesus. It refers to his origin. That he is one with God the Father Almighty. And therefore, he is truly God in the flesh. Or consider the story of Jesus calming the sea in Luke chapter 8. This is Luke 8, verses 22 to 24. It says, One day, Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. The words of Jesus control creation. Just as in Genesis chapter 1, when God created everything by the power of his word, Jesus is God in the flesh. 
But we also see Jesus as being God in the flesh in his position or in his role. This is Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33. When the angel is talking to Mary, it says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so in Jesus Christ, not only is absolute power restrained to human form, also the highest king, the highest authority is made a peasant. Of course, it would have made much more sense to us if Jesus, who is king over all, were to come to earth as a king. But God ordained that even Jesus' kingly authority would be hidden and shrouded in this first coming of Jesus Christ. And seeing Jesus in this way, beloved, is really just the tip of an enormous iceberg where we see that Jesus really is this incredible conjunction of opposites. That he is the one who has all power, who is made powerless. He is the one who has all authority, who is given no authority. Jonathan Edwards said that Jesus is a conjunction of excellencies that are unlike anyone else in human history. And John Piper, reflecting on Jonathan Edwards, puts it like this. He says, A lion is admirable for its ferocious strength and imperial appearance. A lamb is admirable for its meekness and servant-like provision of wool for our clothing. But even more admirable is a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion. What makes Jesus Christ glorious, as Jonathan Edwards observed over 250 years ago, is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. For example, we admire Christ for his transcendence, but even more because the transcendence of his greatness is mixed with submission to God. We marvel at him because his uncompromising justice is tempered with mercy. His majesty is sweetened by meekness and his equality with God. He had a deep reverence for God. Though he is worthy of all good, he was patient to suffer evil. His sovereign dominion over the world was clothed with the spirit of obedience and submission. He baffled the proud scribes with his wisdom, but he was simple enough to be loved by children. He could still the storm with a word, but would not strike the Samaritans with lightning or take himself down from the cross. The glory of Christ is not a simple thing. It is a coming together in one person of extremely diverse qualities. Beloved, this is the beauty of Jesus Christ. Not just that he is almighty because he is almighty, but because he gave up all of his power to become weak like us. Not just that he is a king who will sit on his throne forever and ever because he will, but because he gave up his kingship to die on a cross for us. That in Jesus we see the perfect mix of everything good in its utmost beautiful form and in the form of giving it all up for the sake of others. This is the 
beauty of Jesus Christ. He is God, restrained. He was worthy of all worship and praise. And yet he came to serve us and to die for us. The second thing that stands out so much in the Gospel of Luke to show us the beauty of Jesus Christ is the love of Jesus Christ. When we see that Jesus Christ did give up all of his power and all of his authority, when we see that he became like us of his own free will, it begs the question, why would he do this? Why would anyone in their right minds become something so low and so humble when they were so glorious and so majestic? And the best answer that Luke provides is that Jesus is extraordinarily loving. I believe that if there were one characteristic of Jesus that stood out above all the others— even given how Jesus could heal the sick and cast out demons and raise the dead, I think anyone who truly knew Jesus, the first thing that they would say about him would not be that he could heal a lot of sick people. But the first thing they would say about him was that he loved people so much. He was so extraordinarily given over to love. I think we see this most clearly in Jesus' own teaching. Again, as we read in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36, this is so close to the heart of Jesus' teaching. He says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be called sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful." And beloved, we know that Jesus was the perfect picture of this with his life. Even to the point of death on the cross, he prayed for those who nailed him to a cross and he would not curse them or insult them. He scoffs at those of us who only love those who are easy to love and who love us in return. And the question he asks of us and then he demonstrates with his own life is, who are you going to love that is hard to love, that is impossible to love? What enemy of yours will you love? This is the love of Jesus Christ that he displayed for us, beloved. While we were his enemies, he died for us. We also see this clearly in Luke chapter 7 when he went to the town of Nain. And it says that as he was coming into the town surrounded by a great crowd, he sees a widow weeping over her dead son. And simply the sight of this widow losing her only child 
moves him toward her, leaving the crowd behind. And in Luke 7, verse 14, it says, He came up and he touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said to that dead young man, Young man, I say to you, arise. Beloved, he said that because he loved that widow, and he loved that young man. He didn't have to do it. He had no reason to pay attention to that widow. That widow was not rich and famous. She could not pay him anything. But in his love, he went to her and he served her. This is the extraordinary love of Jesus Christ. Beloved, I pray that you yourself have a testimony of the love of Jesus Christ for you. How is it that you yourself were an enemy of God and Christ pursued you and came to you and made himself known to you? How has he won you over with his love? Behold the beauty of the love of Jesus Christ. And again, the third and the last thing that I want us to see is really shining through this gospel of Luke as being true of Jesus. Is that he wasn't only ultimate power restrained, he wasn't only purely loving, he was also entirely single-minded and uncompromising. You see, so often we think that to be a loving person means that you have to bend to the will of others. You simply have to do what others want you to do. And yet Jesus' love, being first and foremost to God above, knew that he always and only had to do the will of his Father. We saw this first and foremost when Jesus was a young boy. When he was 12 years old and he knew that he needed to be with his father in the temple regardless of his parents' wishes. And so in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 42, it says, When he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to custom. And when the feast was ended and they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in their group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? We all know that no one has a greater claim on us and on our lives on this earth than our parents. And yet here's Jesus, even as a 12-year-old, saying, you know what, regardless of what my parents say, I know that I must be with my father in the temple. He knew that he should have gone with his parents after Passover was ended. And yet he also knew the will of his father. And he would not compromise the will of his father merely to please his parents. Very soon after that, we read the story of Jesus going out into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And even in the very first temptation, we again see the spine of steel that Jesus had. 
This is Luke 4, verses 1 to 4. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Again, beloved, could you imagine fasting for 40 days? And then being tempted with just one simple thing, just to have some bread. That's no great sin, right? God made bread for us to enjoy. And yet, Jesus could so clearly see the temptation of the devil. He was so committed to living in obedience to God alone that even though he was starving after a 40-day fast, he would say no to the devil, and he would say that man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the strength of Jesus Christ and how committed he was to his Father's will. And then lastly, We see this very same thing in the example of Jesus beginning his ministry in Nazareth. Again, we read the first words that Jesus spoke in Nazareth where he stood up and he read from the prophet Isaiah and he told the people who had known him for most of his life, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Saying to them, I know you think of me as just the son of Joseph and as a nobody, but I tell you, I am the one promised by Isaiah the prophet. And then if that weren't enough, he goes on in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 24. He said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. He goes on to essentially challenge them up front. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath and the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. You see, beloved, Jesus knew who he was and he knew what his mission was. And he was not going to sugarcoat things or make things easier for other people to accept. No, he was going to remain uncompromising to what God, his Father, had for him. And if that meant making clear to the people of his town that they had some idolatry of their ethnicity, of their Israelite identity, then he would make clear to them that they had that idolatry and that he would go to the Gentiles even if it meant that they were going to throw him off of a cliff. This was the character of Jesus Christ. He was perfectly loving to others and yet he was also perfectly uncompromising in doing the will of God. Again, beloved, examples of each of these things could be multiplied to no end. But this was Jesus Christ, beloved. He was God in the flesh. 
He was God in the flesh, given over to love and given over to perfect obedience to God himself. I hope that in these three things, at least, you start to get a glimpse of the staggering beauty of Jesus Christ. How there truly has been no one else like him and there will never be another one like him. That you would see that truly knowing him is better than knowing anything else in all the earth. And again, beloved, perhaps the most staggering thing to consider after thinking of all of these things, after thinking of all of the perfections of Jesus Christ, is that all of these perfections, this character of Jesus Christ, this perfect character, is now offered to you by faith. Because when Jesus came in his perfection and in his might and in his glory, he also came to die. And when he came to die, he came to die in your place. Not simply as an example or as a role model, but he came to die so that you don't have to die. And he came to rise again from the dead so that you yourself can rise again from the dead. And what is it that we get when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and we die with him and we rise with him? We get the very character of Jesus Christ covering us right now. So that all these glories of Jesus Christ that we behold when we look at him, All the same glories, beloved, are attributed to us when the Father looks down on us. So that you don't have to look to Christ as some distant and remote example that you can never measure up to. But as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, it is near to you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. This character is granted to you by faith alone, beloved, if you will simply own it. If you will simply receive it, if you will trust in Christ, you will not be the ugly sinner that we all are apart from him. You will be the perfect and glorious one in the robes of Jesus Christ, putting them on. Romans 8, 29 says that those whom he foreknew That is, all those who trust in Jesus Christ, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so, beloved, even all this glory that Jesus Christ has is not a glory that he keeps to himself. And he waits for us to somehow earn it or somehow gain his favor. It is a glory that he freely bestows upon all who believe. So, beloved, I exhort you this morning, trust in Jesus Christ and own this beautiful garment that Jesus himself has sewn for you. The lion and the lamb, the perfectly loving one, the one who perfectly submits to God's will. And if you will claim that identity by faith, then God will increasingly shape you after the image of his Son day by day. And then again, like the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3, you can come to know Christ more and more by being in Christ, by knowing his sufferings and by knowing the power of his resurrection in you. So that again, Christ will not be a far-off person that you just admire from a distance. 
but he will be one who you intimately know and have fellowship with day by day as you know his power at work in you. Will you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, again, I say that I know that none of us with the eyes of our flesh can truly behold the glory of Christ. And even with the spiritual eyes that you give us here and now, God, I don't believe that we are able to fully grasp the glory of Christ. That is what will take all eternity to uncover and to witness. But Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes a bit more this morning to behold the glory of Christ, to see that he is our treasure, that he is our joy. He is our delight. He is the one we were made for. And God, as we put our faith in him in that way, would we know true rest and true peace? With the perfect righteousness of Christ being our own? And would we live joyfully each day in that identity, I pray, and in that identity alone? I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.